Um, as I said last week, uh, we firmly believe that if you get your hermeneutic right, your hermeneutics right, you'll get your eschatology right. Eschatology is last things. Hermeneutics is the art and science of biblical interpretation. That is, if you uh, interpret the Bible correctly, what we, what we believe is the correct way to interpret Scripture, from the Old Testament through to the end of the Bible, you'll get your eschatology right. Now, last week, um, and by the way, the last couple of weeks, if you missed, um, I, I laid out the, the four different approaches to interpreting the book of Revelation. I uh, defined the uh, millennial views um, of our day, and uh, if you missed any of that, you're going to have to go listen to that so that all of this um, connects. But last week at the end of our gathering, a question was asked, and it was this, how do we answer those who accuse us of replacement theology, and that, that is a label that is uh, slapped on us if you have an all-millennial view. Um, they'll slap that on you, that you believe in replacement theology. And that's a charge laid against us uh, from writers, dispensational writers such as John Hagee. I wouldn't recommend John Hagee's ministry, by the way. Or uh, uh, here's one, Chuck Missler, who I heard say this, quote, you can follow all millennialism from Augustine to Auschwitz. Yeah, that's what I said. Which is, friends, a slanderous, underhanded way of accusing all millennialists of being anti-Semitic, unfortunately. And let me be clear that all millennialism does not teach that the church replaces ethnic Israel. What we do believe is, is that there is a one people of God that the Bible refers to as his elect in the Old Testament, most of the elect members of the covenant line were of the covenant line uh, by way of the nation of Israel, along obviously with evidence of true believers outside the covenant people, you know, Rahab, Ruth, the Moabitess, um, the fruit that we see of some, no doubt, that, that came out of Nineveh who heard the preaching of Jonah and repented, um, and therefore... With Christ coming, fulfilling, fulfilling all Old Testament promises, the church now is the continuation of true Israel. We read in the New Testament that not all Israel is of Israel. Ethnicity has nothing to do with it. It is the work and the power and the grace of God alone. Now, with regard to, quote-unquote, replacement theology, uh, listen to what Sam Waldron writes, uh, by way of illustration, quote, as the butterfly surpasses the caterpillar from which it emerges, so the church as the new Israel surpasses the old Israel. The butterfly does not exactly replace the caterpillar. It is the caterpillar in a new phase of existence. In the same way, to speak of the church replacing Israel is to forget that the church is Israel in a newly formed and expanded phase of existence. In a word, terminology like replacement theology disguises the fact that the church is really the continuation of God's true Israel. End quote. Amen. So I don't think it should be referred to as replacement theology, but actually referred to as expansion 
theology. Since the people of God are so numerous after the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ that it's a multitude in Revelation 7 that cannot even be numbered. Of a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So the question is, well, what about ethnic Jews? Well, in Romans 11, if you remember that, we read that all Israel will be saved. Okay, now what's Paul talking about? Well, what he's not talking about is that every ethnic Jew without exception will be saved. He's not talking about ethnic Israel as a nation, as an all-inclusive people, will be saved. What he's teaching is that there are Jews from throughout every generation that will be saved. Which assumes what? That as an ethnic people, they will continue to exist. An ethnic entity. From out of whom some will be saved until the return of Jesus. Now, as we read the New Testament, um, we see that it explains that those... The things promised in the Old Testament, as we read the New, we see how they were fulfilled in the, in the fullest sense. Now, since dispensationalists, and why am I spending so much time on dispensational premillennialism? Well, because that's the most popular view adhered to in modern American evangelicalism. And that is that they stress that all prophecy is fulfilled um, in a literal sense. That any, any biblical reference to Israel means for them ancient and or modern ethnic Israel. And not the true remnant of God's people, including the, the church that is true Israel. Now... Think about this, as I stated last week. If we regarded the original promise that God gave to Abraham in chapter 12, chapter 15, and chapter 17 of Genesis as the hermeneutical key to determine how we understand last things, we could never rightly understand the promise given to Abraham in the fullest sense. It would be impossible. And when we get to Hebrews 11, what are we taught? That the promise of a land given to Israel was typological of something much, much greater. That is, beloved, a heavenly kingdom. Which would have been inconceivable in the days of the patriarchs, inconceivable in the days of Moses. But we're told by faith, that's how Abraham saw it. So now the New Testament, the New Testament, that is, the mystery revealed explains for us what those things promised in the Old Testament fully meant. Okay, so dispensationalists say, the Old Testament tells us what the promise is in its physical soil in Palestine. Therefore, it must be taken literally or else we undermine the authority of Scripture. And I quoted John MacArthur to you last week whom I love, but disagree with his eschatology. Now, in, in the time of the Reformation, the Reformers, uh, they taught uh, that, that Christians are, are called 
to focus on um, sensus literalis, the literal sense of the word when they read the scriptures. And what's meant by sensus literalis is, is not that every text in the scripture is given in, in a woodenly literal sense, and that it's to be interpreted in a wooden literal sense, but rather we must interpret the Bible in the sense in which it was written. If it's a parable, you have to interpret it as a parable. So you'd have to learn the rules of, of, of parables. Poetry is poetry, symbols as symbols. So census literalis begins, no doubt, with an historical grammatical study of the text, but our study may reveal that the text was intended to be typological or to be understood symbolically under the light of the New Testament. For instance, as we're currently studying uh, the Exodus in, in church service, you know, certain professors will teach their students or they'll ask their students as they teach from an Old Testament text, they'll say, could this sermon have been preached in a synagogue? Like, could I go next door tomorrow to this Jewish school and teach from Exodus as I will teach it today? Answer, better be no. It better be no. Because there's something distinct about Christian preaching in light of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're told what these things truly ultimately mean. So the the light of the New Testament provides the fullness of insight to the promise given to the Old Testament saints. As Christ then, we teach, is the key to understanding. Jesus is the hermeneutical key to understanding the promises of the Old Testament. 1 Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Okay, so there's a little review, beloved, because um, I want you to be able to reason with your dispensational friends because we all have them, amen? And some of us were them, amen? Amen. And some of us probably still are them. And I'm here to convince you otherwise. Amen? Amen. Amen. (laughs) Now, with regard to the second advent of our Lord, the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, we believe, we teach that the Bible clearly proclaims that the judgment, the resurrection, the cosmic renewal of all things all occur at the second advent of our Lord Jesus Christ. When he comes, he will raise the dead. When he comes, he will judge the world. He will renew all of creation that was cursed at the fall in Eden from where his glorious work of redemption began. As the seed promised in Genesis 3.15 finds its ultimate fulfillment in Christ Jesus, we read in 1 John 3.8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of of the devil. So when he comes a second time, he will cast that defeated foe into the lake of fire. There will be the resurrection of the righteous, the resurrection of the unrighteous, the judgment of all men from throughout all time, the wheat and the tares, the sheep and the goats, God's elect and the reprobate. 
will be divided. As the heavens, in 2 Peter chapter 3 tells us, will pass away with a roar, the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. New heaven and new earth will descend where righteousness dwells. We believe it all occurs at the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we now live in what's known as the millennium, the millennium period described in Revelation 20. In other words, this is the gospel age. This is the kingdom age. When Jesus the king came the first time, he inaugurated his kingdom. When he comes the second time, he will consummate that already inaugurated kingdom. It's the already established, not fully consummated kingdom period of redemptive history in which we live. That is what we teach. That is what we believe the Bible teaches. And then after that millennial period, which could be this afternoon, he comes back without warning, raises the dead, judges the world, makes all things new, all things new, which means we teach that the second coming or the coming of the Lord and the appearing of the Lord are synonymous terms. The premillennial dispensational school of interpretation um, concerns not only the timing of Christ's coming, that is with regard to, this, to the millennium, that they believe that his coming precedes the millennium, but it also concerns the mode, concerns the mode of his coming teaching that there's a vital difference between the coming of the Lord and the appearing of the Lord. That is, when Jesus comes, they teach that he's only coming for his church to sweep them away secretly. Who's familiar with that type of eschatology? I'd say everybody in here, right? And this will occur in what's referred to as the secret rapture. Now, in our day, beloved, as you are well aware, I'm sure, that when you gather with other Christian brothers and sisters and someone mentions eschatology or Christ's return, immediately most of those friends will begin to talk about the rapture. A woman on a plane, the last time I flew, it was a few weeks ago, in a discussion, I'm waiting for her. At first, I listened to people let them talk, and this woman just would not stop. Very talented woman, bright woman. We had a great conversation. And I always wait for the question, so what do you do? (laughs) So instead of saying pastor, and I got this from somebody I don't know who's a pastor. Instead of saying, well, I'm a pastor. They say, uh, I say, uh, I have the greatest job in the world. I get to tell people how they can be 100% certain that when they die, all their sins are forgiven and they can go be with the Lord forever. So she says, I know the answer. I know the answer. And she, she was a professing Christian, and right away she wanted to talk about the rapture anyway. <laughs> when you begin these discussions with friends, um, they immediately begin to speak in terms that can be found in the Left Behind series. Let's be honest. Premillennial dispensational folks say that when Christ comes, the Gentile church is taken away to heaven, given glorified bodies, which begins the tribulation period. Some people will be left behind. Some of those left behind will become believers. And the people who become believers during the seven years 
are the ones who will have natural bodies who go on to repopulate the earth, while others, the raptured believers, have glorified bodies and will rule with Christ for a literal 1,000 years. And that 1,000 years is something, something of a renewed Eden where after that 1,000 literal years, there's a second fall of man. Then there's final judgment. Then there's a new heaven and a new earth. We believe, again, that the Bible teaches that, that Christ's coming and his appearing are describing the same event. Which leads to my next question. Does the Bible teach, okay, does the Bible teach a premillennial or tribulation rapture of believers from the earth? That is, referring to a secret rapture before Christ appears in glory. Well, one of the Proof text, which I believe is no proof at all, is 1 Thessalonians 4. So let's look at that together. 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul writes to Thessalonians because they, they had a lot of problems in their thinking with regard to the second coming. Uh, they were worried about what about those who have died? What about those who've gone on to be with the Lord? Then it was, you know, uh, they were being taught that Christ has already returned. So they were very confused. A lot of them, once they realized he hasn't come, he basically went and, you know, sold everything, quit their jobs, basically sat on a hill looking for Jesus to return. So here in in 1 Thessalonians 4, picking it up in verse 13, notice, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. In other words, those Christian brothers and sisters who've died. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself, here it is, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them, in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, and so will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. That's where they get a secret rapture from. The question, is there anything secret about it? (laughs) Not when I read it. Notice the first event. The Lord descends with the voice of an archangel. Notice the sound of the trumpet. And in Revelation, the seventh trumpet is the? Last trumpet. The last trumpet. Notice the second event, the dead in Christ will rise. Lord descends, the the dead in Christ will rise, referring to every believer who's ever died throughout time who are presently where in spirit? Intermediate state. They're with the Lord. Their body's in the grave or their body was annihilated at sea, eaten by sharks, whatever the case. Those bodies... Our supernatural Lord will resurrect those bodies to be brought together with the Spirit who's with the Lord. And then we who are alive, when Jesus comes back, will be changed on the way up. Because these bodies, they can't even exist at 20,000 feet, let alone in glory. Amen? 
So it has to be changed, transformed. Physically raised, joined with their spirit, existing in their intermediate state, that is the presence of Christ. That's where they are. And then at the same time, those who are alive will be caught up together with him. Three times in the passage, Paul uses language to convey the idea that Christ's return to earth will be accompanied by loud, clear, divine announcements. In verse 16, the Lord will descend from heaven with a loud command, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet call of God. Again, that's the last trumpet. So the whole thrust of that threefold announcement is that God himself will proclaim the return of his son, Jesus Christ, so loudly that the whole world will hear. No mistake. Continue reading chapter 5. Now, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come as a thief in, like a thief in the night while people are saying there's peace and security. Then poof, sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains comes upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But notice here, in, both believers and non-believers will be in attendance when he returns. Notice, but you're not in darkness for that day to surprise you like a thief. That day. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We're not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. And then in verse 9, he says, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Kim Riddlebarger, in his work, A Case for All Millennialism, writes this, and I quote, If dispensationalists are correct in saying that this coming is a secret, then only believers will hear the divine declaration. As my colleague Ken Jones so aptly puts it, this turns the thrice-repeated announcement of Christ's return into something akin to a cosmic dog whistle. What, what, is worse, what is worse is dispensationalists are correct about a secret rapture. If they're correct about a secret rapture, then Jesus does not have two advents, but three. Okay, This isn't to mock this, by the way. I, I want you to understand what the Bible teaches. Amen? And you can engage with our friends, because they are our friends. Amen? In 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in the moment in the twinkling of eye at the last what? Trumpet. Not second to last. The last. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, we shall be changed, for this perishable perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Again, it occurs at the last trumpet, not the second to the last. So the Bible teaches clearly, beloved, that... There will be Christians living on the earth when Christ returns in glory. They won't have disappeared. When he appears, okay, that is when he comes again. Synonymous terms, the appearing and the coming of the Lord. Look at Matthew 13. Beginning in verse 24.
Jesus put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat, and he went away. So when, he, when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both together, let both grow together. Until the what? The harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. The wheat, God's elect. That's the good seed. Saved people living on earth when he returns. Are they to be raptured out of the world before the last day? No. Verse 30. Let both grow together until the harvest. Gather the weeds first. Burn them. Gather the weed into my barn. Believers, in other words, will be living alongside the wicked until the day of the harvest. Another verse to support the secret rapture is Matthew 24. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, one will be left. My dispensational brethren's brethren will say, that's the secret rapture. Okay, but what Jesus is describing here, beloved, is final judgment. Note verse 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day, okay, that day, Okay, because before that he was, he was describing uh, God's judgment that will come upon the temple, which occurred in 70 AD. Then he talks about heaven and earth passing away. So I believe he, 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 he moves on to show something greater with regard to his judgment, preceded by imagery that was powerful, destructive, that will happen in 70 AD. He talks about heaven and earth pass away. My words will not pass away concerning that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son of the Father, nor the Son, but only the Father. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them away. Swept them away into what? Judgment. So will the coming of the Son of Man. Then... Two men will be in the field. One will be taken. What? Taken where? Swept away into judgment. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken away. One left. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know the day, what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake. would not have left his house to be broken into. Therefore, be ready. It's the Son of Man come. So verses 40 to 44 are stressing the suddenness of Christ's coming. It's sudden. The taking of men and women from their tasks in verses 40 and 40 to 42 is not a picture of a pre-tribulation or rapture. Jesus is stressing the fact that the separation of the wicked and the righteous is immediate. There's no warning. 
we will look up from our labor one day and a one seemingly ordinary day and find ourselves at the consummation of all things. That's the point. That's what I think the Bible's teaching. You know, you may not know this. There was no teaching of a secret rapture before the year 1830. Let me read you something from Great Doctrines of the Bible. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones records, this is recorded in his teaching. He says, quote, The teaching about the secret rapture did not appear before 1830. We have, in fact, an authoritative statement as to how it began. There was a New Testament scholar called Tregellis who belonged to the so-called Plymouth Brethren. Tregellis was certainly one of the greatest scholars of the New Testament textual criticism of the last century, and in addition, he was a saintly man of God. In 1830, and subsequently, he was present at the Powers Court Conference, which were attended by the great J.N. Darby and B.W. Newton and other people belonging to that school. This is what Tregellis says, quote, I'm not aware that there was any definite teaching that there should be a secret rapture of the church at a secret coming until it was given forth at, a, at an utterance in Mr. Irving's church from what was then received as being the voice of the Spirit. But whether anyone else asserted such a thing or not, it was not from that supposed revelation that the modern doctrine and modern phraseology arose. He continues, All sorts of people crowded to listen to him, society people and others, because of his amazing oratory and, some, and, and sometimes also because of the novelty of his views. Unfortunately, poor Edward Irving, to be charitable, seems to have become slightly unbalanced in his teaching. He began to speak in tongues, as he claimed, and to preach that God had given him a vision. So he founded a new church, which was called the Apostolic Church. He claimed that the church was still apostolic, that apostles and prophets should not have ceased at the end of the early period of the church, but that there should still be apostles and prophets and that they should still have revelations and indulge in prophetic utterances and have visions and speak, speak in tongues and so on. Tregella says that as far as he knew, the doctrine of the secret rapture of the church at the coming of our Lord was first taught as a result of the prophetic utterance in Edward Irving's church. It originated as an utterance in tongues interpreted by someone and indeed Tregella emphasized this by saying that this teaching was a revelation. According to Tregellus, the teaching with regard to the preliminary rapture of the saints, which first came in as a prophetic utterance, was accepted by certain people present at the 1830 conference, including John Darby. He's the one who popularized this whole thing. Uh, many people are not aware that it was not generally accepted, even among that circle, and there was a division, only J.N. Darby and certain other of his followers accepted it. End quote. Dispensationalism, also known as Darbyism, is relatively a relatively recent development, whether you realize it or not. It was revived in the 1970s by the work of Hal Lindsey, especially in his book, The Late Great Planet Earth. And then it was fictionalized by the Left Behind series, which has become, for most dispensational evangelicals, an adopted eschatology. This will mess up your hermeneutics. I think that the secret rapture is classic eisegesis, meaning you're reading into the text something that is not there. 
where Jesus takes believers away for seven years, comes back, sets up a thousand-year geopolitical kingdom. Geopolitical kingdom with a literal temple. And the reinstitution of sacrifices, friends. Is that blasphemous? He is the Lamb of God. Slain before the foundation of the earth. All those Old Testament sacrifices pointed to Him. He fulfilled it all. He is the yes. He is the amen. Amen. Now, those same dear dispensational brethren of mine often say in support of a future literal political kingdom, there must be a literal physical temple as the Antichrist must take his seat in the temple. Proof text, 2 Thessalonians 2. You want to turn there. So let's look at it. This is where my friends take me as their proof text for a future literal millennial temple in Jerusalem. 2 Thessalonians 2. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, some scholars believe that with Paul writing this, he's looking forward to that which will happen in 70 AD when the Roman armies entered in and uh, did just that into the temple that was still standing. Okay? That's one view. But here's another, here's another view, and here's the question. <clears throat> As we read the New Testament, we clearly see that it is the church that is the true end-time temple of God. So are we to view this text describing some future, literal, physical temple in Israel... Or is this metaphorical language expressing opposition of evil towards Christ's church? I quote G.K. Beale. Beale writes that in Paul's writings, temple refers to the church without exception. Without exception. Temple, quoting Beale, temple in Revelation can refer to both true believers on earth or in heaven. So we need not see that the man of lawlessness or the the Antichrist is literally positioning, positioning himself in a chair in a physical temple. This also ought to be seen as figurative sitting, which is in line with other metaphorical New Testament language. For instance... In Matthew 23, verse 2, Jesus said that the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in Moses' seat. Was there a seat of Moses there? No. That's an expression depicting the self-appointed role of interpretive authority that the Sanhedrin had taken 
not a literal seat. Beale goes on and he says, as Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, doesn't necessarily mean there's furniture in heaven. End quote, amen. (laughs) That's from his book, The Temple and the Church's Mission, which I highly recommend. So it's Jesus who, who most certainly fulfills what the temple stands for. So we believe that. Dispensational friends will say that, and then they go on to try to support some future geopolitical kingdom with a real temple, literal temple. Jesus is the reason that the literal tabernacle and literal um, physical temple existed in the first place. It was pointing to him. Matthew 12, 6. Jesus said, something greater than the temple is here. And as a matter of fact, I am the Sabbath. <laughs> In Matthew 26, 61, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. So again, Beale points out that the Lord's use of words provides a transitional perspective. God in redemptive history is transitioning from this picture to the substance in its Christ. He mentions the physical temple, Jesus does, he mentions the physical temple in order to indicate a redemptive historical shift to the end. That's Beale's argument. And I say amen and amen to it. The end time temple seeing the material temple destroyed and rebuilt in Jesus' resurrection body. And if we're in union with him, what does that make us? The church, the temple of the living God. Let me quote Beale again for you. In context to that 2 Thessalonians passage, This is where this writing comes from in context to that. Quote, The practical relevance of this discussion for the contemporary church, the temple is that the spirit of the Antichrist may already already be found hovering in its midst when its leaders change God's word and contradict its meaning. For example, many church leaders today say that we need to be accepting of other faiths contending that sincerity in any kind of faith may be a legitimate legitimate path to God. Who are we to say that we have the only truth? To many, the exclusive claim of Christianity sounds narrow and harsh, yet Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. His follower, Peter, said, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Such teachings represent the lawlessness. Okay, did you get that? Such teachings represent the lawlessness of the Antichrist prophesied by Daniel to pollute the end time temple. True believers need to be on the alert not to be deceived by such eschatological corruption in order to keep the temple of God doctrinally and ethnically pure. Indeed, 
it should not be assumed that the spirit of the Antichrist, 1 John 4, influences only unbelieving false teachers. Leaders who are true Christians and those under their guidance are susceptible to this influence and can be caught up in worldly ways of thinking. All in the church, to one degree or another, are confronted and tempted by this worldly influence. This is why we need continually to be alert to resisting it. End quote. So the idea may be that the man of lawlessness assumes so much influence and religious authority in the global community of faith here that he might as well be calling himself God. That's the argument. What do we read in 1 John 2, verse 18? Children, it is the last hour. John, writing, first century, it is the last hour. And as, as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. And if I had time, I'd go on to show you that the image in uh, 2 Thessalonians 2 is the image that foreshadows John's description of the beast in Revelation 13. You can listen to that online if you want to see that comparison or how he foreshadows the, you know, the beast and so on. So, so we're out of time. Okay, so again, this isn't to... cut down dispensational premillennial brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not to mock. Um, it is to equip us to see what we believe the Bible clearly teaches. Things that are popular ain't necessarily right. <laughs> right? Just because a lot of people attend certain places doesn't mean what's going on there is, is solely right. Test all things in light of Scripture. Hold fast to that which is true. Be a Berean. Amen?